Walking in the light, we're in 1 John. This is part 10. The topic this morning, Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, and the anointing. And the text is, it's a little bit longer a text than we've been taking in the last little while. 1 John chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 18 to 29. So get a Bible, follow along. It's a really significant, deep text. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John writes, children, children, because John's old now. He's toward the end of his life, well in his 90s. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so that's future tense, is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, past tense. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. That's the second time he's made reference to the last hour in one verse. 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, these antichrists, spirit of antichrist. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So there's people among them, but not really with them. 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. It's an interesting sentence. 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. So these liars, spirit of Antichrist, they never were of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So now we see very specifically the area of truth that he's concerned about. It's not algebra or history. The truth about Jesus. Middle of 22. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So it's not enough just not to deny the Son. There's this, the positive side is you have to be confessing the Son. Certain things about the Son have to be in place. Middle of 23, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. You have to let it. It's something they have to do. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So it's it's not automatic. You have to let this happen, he says in 24. Verse 25, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. It's an interesting phrase. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, Just as it has taught you, abide in him. 28. And now, little children, abide in him. He's repeated that so many times. So that when he appears, that's when Jesus comes, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
That's a, what a text. There are, I think, several things that make this passage a little more tricky to deal with. A, John introduces the person and work of Antichrist for the first time. John actually, the Apostle John, is the only one to actually use that word. Though the subject is covered, John is the only one who uses the term Antichrist. Also, he uses that term in at least two different ways. He writes about the the person of Antichrist who is yet to appear, 18a, but, but he also uses the word Antichrist to describe the, the spiritual activity, the deception from certain people who seem to be alive when he was writing. That's in 18b. So he uses the term in two different ways. B, the text, this text, is where John introduces the subject of the anointing. Talks about it in verse 20 and verse 27. He talks about the anointing that teaches all things. And then... John goes on to teach about it, strangely. C, add to all this the fact that this passage deals pretty fervently with a subject we don't hear a lot about in the church anymore, false teaching. And at least in my opinion, most of the church hasn't had a deep interest in this subject for quite a while. And I think there's a reason for that. The, the culture in which we live, this is an age of religious uh, pluralism. We sing praises of open-mindedness and religious tolerance. The worst sin you can commit is being too dogmatic. Nobody's worried about the sin of being gullible. And so John's words in this longer text, they actually sound like relics from another era. And all of those factors make it challenging to sort of open up our hearts and hear what the Spirit might want to say. Let's work through some truths. Point number one. The danger of mixed-up doctrine and departure from the truth apparently increases as the church age progresses and draws to a close. I get that in verses 18 and 19. Children, it is... The last hour, look look at those words. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, so there's an is coming and a have come. Therefore we know that it, here it is again, it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. So increasingly, according to John, as the years roll by and as this age draws to a close, he talks about the last hour, uses that phrase twice. The church will have to switch where it looks for its greatest enemies. So so the danger won't be primarily persecution from the outside. That's what we hear about a lot. But the greatest danger as this age draws to a close won't be persecution from the outside. It'll be deception from the inside. People will embrace teachings that they shouldn't embrace. Many in the church will be confused 
thinking that uh, somehow tender-heartedness requires soft-mindedness and they'll think that they're actually pleasing Jesus in that. So John says, as we get into these last days and as we progress through them, they started in John's day, but they're, we're progressing through them. He says people, they won't want to confront false teaching in the church. They won't want to be against. Nobody likes to be against anything. People, they'll want to feel certain things. They'll want to enjoy the fellowship. They'll want to enjoy the worship. And they, and they might link spirituality with a certain inward emotional condition rather than walking in the truth. John's very concerned that we see the connection between spirituality and rejecting false teaching. The, apparently, there's, there's no spirituality apart from rejecting error. You, you, you can't be Christ-like without rejecting error. Notice those words. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So John made sure they were, they were taught about this. They're, they weren't just warned about a person of Antichrist who would come and persecute them from without, but he warned them of this spirit of Antichrist who would increasingly come and deceive them from within. Seems to be John's bigger concern. So, so the real enemy is this enemy you, you don't see. The real enemy is the invisible personality behind the person you see. His work is deceptive. I, I believe, and I want to just go over this quickly. I believe the spirit of the age, Satan, uh, the spirit of Antichrist, I believe he pollutes the power of the church, the power of truth in the church, in four ways. Four ways that the power of truth gets polluted in the church. A, he creates a lazy climate where uh, finding pleasure is preferred to getting wisdom. You can see that in Proverbs. Proverbs 23, 12, and then 8, and then 10 and 11. Apply your heart to instruction. There's, there's the verb. Apply your heart to instruction, your ear to words of knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all you may desire cannot compare with her. So A, the enemy creates a lazy climate where finding pleasure is preferred to gaining wisdom. B, he snatches truth away from the mind before it gets incorporated into the life. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, the evil one comes, look, and, and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is what was sown on the path. Jesus said in the parable, the birds come and pick it up before anything has a chance to germinate. See, here's another way. I think he distracts us from applying the truth to our lives by making present concerns seem more important. Matthew 13, 22 as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, 
but, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. D, he centers our attention on general religion or personal morality, but apart from Jesus Christ. Colossians 2, 8 to 10. See to it. He's talking to Christians, and they can miss this. So see to it that no one takes you captive by by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See, there it is. Religion, philosophy, thinking, ideas, truth, morality, but but not in Christ. Don't, don't, don't have anything to do with that, Paul says. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So there's those four ways in which I think the enemy uh, works to deceive the truth, the, the church rather. And, and so again, John writes to these dear children, 18, and, and he's trying to get them ready for, for these perilous times, Paul calls them in another place, this change in the wind. You're going to see more and more skeptics rising to the surface. You'll, you'll see people, your friends, family members, you'll see more and more people who are renouncing, deconstructing, giving up on Christian truth. Mockers will have their day. People won't have much taste for simply learning the truth anymore. And that will mean you'll have to be called intolerant and maybe even called dogmatic. And John says, just get ready for that. Just get ready for that. Point number two. After talking about the dangers facing the church, John points out the resources to keep them in the truth. First John 2, I want to look at 20 and then 27, okay? Because he talks about the same subject here. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. That's an interesting phrase. And it's past tense. You have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. 27. But, and here it is again, the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. I want to talk about that. But as His anointing, there it is again, teaches teaches you about everything, and it is true and is no lie, just as it was taught you, abide in him. The anointing. I mean, the words get used a lot. They conjure up a lot of different pictures in our minds. Uh, a preacher who takes his jacket off and sweats and yells and gets the crowd saying amen. Maybe responses at a church altar. Good thing. Maybe someone who prays in such a way the, the power of his or her voice. A church service that goes on and on and on and nobody notices the passing of hours. All those things. I've seen it in my own day. All those things have been described with those words, the anointing. 
Ironically, this is the only place in the New Testament where the word anointing is used. I mean, anoint as a verb is, is, is used in different parts of the Bible, anointing someone with oil, someone anointed for an office or a special ministry. But that general term, the anointing, in the New Testament, it just appears here. And that means we don't have a whole bunch of options as to sorting out its meaning. John is really our only guide in this text. And, and, and what we find is the word has more to it than just implying some kind of um, spiritual condition or, or glow or emotional level. John uses the word to describe um, spiritual perseverance living in the power of the truth. So, so in other words, anointing has to do, somehow anointing has to do with living in, grasping and loving the truth. It, it has to do with being Abiding is the word he uses, being possessed by the power of the truth in Christ. And maybe even more accurately, in context here, it has to do with the power to recognize, abstain from, and reject doctrinal errors, especially about Jesus Christ. So, so specifically, the anointing of the Holy Spirit will, more than anything else, it will ground people in the revealed truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what the anointing is for. That seems to be at the heart of John's concern. He, he wants people to be grounded firmly in the person of Jesus Christ because everything is going to be pulling them away from that. He, he puts the issues on the table, uh, the lie and the truth. They're both spelled out in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who de- denies the Father and the Son... And then John makes this big blanket statement. No one who denies the Son, don't talk to me about your relationship with God if you don't recognize Jesus, God the Son, crucified, risen, ascended. Don't talk about God if you're going to deny Christ. That's what he says. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So these verses kind of sharpen the issue for us, don't they? Notice the particular kind of denial John is dealing with. These false teachers, they weren't denying the person of God. They weren't denying the existence of God. They believed in God. What they denied was a lot more subtle and a lot more dangerous. They denied that God had come into this world in Jesus, the Christ, that he died on the cross, that he rose bodily from the grave. They denied that the only way to accept and receive and come to God was to come through faith in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was the only way belief in God has any saving effect whatsoever. That's why John says, 23, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So so John is really dealing with anyone who would teach about God but bypass what the Word reveals about Jesus. 
So religion that tries to patch man up with God without giving weight to the place of Jesus Christ, God the Son, well, John has a label for it. And he doesn't have any good words and he doesn't have any kind words. He specifically calls it just the lie of Antichrist. Wow. Now, back to the anointing. The anointing, according to John, it teaches the saving grace and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the specific nature of the anointing. It seems to be its purpose, its, its goal. The anointing stakes a claim on our hearts. It, it confirms the reality of the lordship of Jesus and, and it, it sounds an inward alarm. That's what the anointing does when Christ isn't being lifted up and exalted to his proper place. And, and John's words really shouldn't surprise us. They're just an echo of what Jesus had already stated much earlier. Look at these words in John's gospel. Our Lord speaks, John 16, 13, and 14. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will, he will glorify me. He will take what is mine and declare it to you. People will always be attracted to God apart from Jesus Christ. There are very few atheists. Most are deists at heart. People are always willing to make room for religion we like to live and let live with our ideas about God and morality and eternity. But the anointing, the one John talks about, it's, it's given specifically to draw us to Jesus Christ. To sort out the truth about him, his person, his cross, his resurrection. And I want to just deal with one more misconception that comes from this passage when we talk about the anointing. I've had it said to me a couple of times there are always a few people who they, they're not keen on church and sermons and Bible study and studying theology in any disciplined way. And they quote what John says in 20 and 27. You have been anointed by the Holy One. See, you have all knowledge. 27, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing, it teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you abide in him. Pastor Don, I just let the Holy Spirit teach me. I just let the Holy Spirit show me stuff. I don't believe in all this doctrinal studying and theological learning. It's just man-made knowledge. Bible says, I don't need anybody to teach me. I I have the Holy Spirit. I have the anointing. I, I know people might mean well when they say that, but it should be plain from the context of those verses that John never intended to teach anything of the sort. If John really meant that the Holy Spirit should teach us everything we ever needed to know without any help from anyone else, why would John bother to teach us 
that the Holy Spirit would teach us. I mean, why not just let the Holy Spirit teach us that? Why do we need John at all? And if the Holy Spirit does all the teaching in everything, and he does it all by itself, we don't need John, we don't need Paul, we don't need Peter. We don't need Jesus' teachings either, apparently. Maybe we don't need the Scriptures. We need care here. What John means is seen in the context. There are people denying the truth about Jesus Christ. That's the subject. They were denying, verse 22, denying that Jesus is the Christ. But those who had received Jesus Christ, those who have tasted his goodness, who have been born of the Spirit from above, they know the truth about Jesus. They know it from the inside. They've experienced it for themselves. Or put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, same thought. But you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. Now, without ever using the word, that's Paul's explanation of what John is calling the anointing in our text. He explains it in exactly the same terms as John. The, 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 the natural man, he just can't inwardly know this truth on his own. The wisdom of this world, Bible says it's foolishness. Where this is concerned, it, it takes the power of the Spirit in the heart to turn on the lights about Jesus Christ and his greatness. So, so the anointing as John sees it and as John describes it, it's the power to inwardly grasp, abide in the truth about Jesus Christ. Not just to hear it, not even just to like it, but to, to taste the beauty of it, to taste the power of it. And, and, very importantly from our text, it's also the anointing is the spiritual power to reject any teaching or any influence that's incompatible with the truth I know about Jesus Christ in my heart and in my life. Okay, point number three. The anointing teaches and encourages us to abide and to persevere in Christ. Let's look at these words. I'm going to read 24 to 29. Follow along, okay, in 1 John chapter 2, starting at 24. Let, there's the verb, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And I want you, as we read, I won't take the time, but just count the references to abide and abiding. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing, he's still talking about the anointing, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. There it is again. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. 
And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. I see, I see three things in this clump of verses. So this would be A, B, and C under point three. Three ways to keep the anointing alive, and then we're going to be done. A, we are to abide in the word to keep the anointing fresh. I thought, I hope you counted all those references. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Notice that you must do it. Let what you heard from the beginning. John sees no conflict between the anointing of the Spirit and the heeding of the Word. Each, each keeps the other alive and potent. So the second way we keep the anointing of the Spirit alive. B, we are to resist the inclination to quit or stall in our following of Jesus Christ. I get that in 24, 25, 26, 27. I'm not going to read all those just for the sake of time. But all through those texts, you can see the references to abiding. There has to be seven or eight of them. That's the only repeated command in those verses. The only repeated command is that verb, abide. I just, I just, something in my heart wants to just draw right down into our lives. No matter, no matter how much guilt you feel, abide. No matter how many times you think you've failed, just abide, abide. No matter how many hypocrites you think there are in the church, abide. I had not that long ago, lady say to me, I'm not coming to your church, it's full of hypocrites. And I said, no, it's not full. We got room for, we got room for more. No matter how few Christians there are in your home, abide. No matter how many uh, mock you in that classroom, just abide. No matter how many of your friends turn their backs on Christ, you just abide. No matter how many Christian leaders mess up and fall, you just abide. Fight all the thousand and one voices and inclinations that come day by day by day and just abide in what you've received. Even temporarily, never get so mad at the church or anyone in it that you just feel like you're going to stay home. Never do anything that puts the brakes on in any part of your Christian walk. Don't do it because one thing is for sure, the anointing of the Holy Spirit will never be leading you in that direction. It'll always draw you repentantly, humbly back to Christ. Quitting always parts company with the Spirit of God. Abide. The third way I think we can keep the anointing alive. View all of life from the viewpoint of the second coming of Christ. 
our last reference. And now, little children, abide in him. So that's right now, while we're alive. So that when he appears, that's in the future, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You see the two references in one verse. And they're tied to, they're tied to this, abiding in him. Test, test your life right now by rehearsing your presence at the second coming of Jesus. True spirituality, the anointing, the effect of the anointing. You will always be comforted by the coming presence of Jesus Christ. Anything dark flees his presence. Jesus may not come back today. He might not come back for years, but I can put myself before his coming right now. That's what John is talking about. Here's a great quote. Over 400 years ago, John Calvin wrote these beautiful words. Righteousness will boldly bear the presence of Christ. Ungodliness can only find comfort by forgetting him, by overdosing itself in the distractions of the flesh. That's a great quote. That's why, that's why whenever people are wrestling with their own inward guilt, they almost always, they quit coming to church or they come less than they used to or they, they hang up their devotional life for a while. It might be anger or failure or busyness or pride, but whatever it is, it's uncomfortable in the presence of Jesus. Remember, anointed people certainly aren't perfect. But the anointing reveals the redemptive power and grace of Jesus Christ. And the anointing draws the person repentantly into Christ, draws the presence of Christ by his spirit, redeemingly, cleansingly, encouragingly back into the heart. That's listening to the spirit. That's living in the anointing. And that's abiding. Let's pray. We are grateful for revealed truth about Jesus Christ in a world that just has lost its way figuring out who he is, why he came, what he did. Let that anointing, the anointing that makes Jesus vivid in our lives, the anointing that, that reassures us of the truthfulness of the word, the, the anointing that, that teaches us to abide when other things around us fall out of place. Let that anointing rest upon Cedarview Community Church. It's, it's the Lord's day. All day today. Let your truth be kept. Let this truth be kept alive in our hearts long after the screen goes dark, that the anointing doesn't go dark in our hearts and lives until we gather again tonight for our evening, our evening service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Don't forget, 6.30 tonight, 
Back in our study, soul food, how the word of God does its work in our hearts. Love to see you then. God bless the church. Love one another.